a happy birthday today to, whoops, I've turned the wrong page. Where are our birthdays? Happy birthday today to Palma Kramer from Des Moines, to Roger D. Christensen from Des Moines, and to Sandra Prosser from Iowa City. Happy birthday to all of you today. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you're hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you are not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our birthday list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. And now here's Linda with the first of our obituaries. From Dexter, Robert Dale Reynolds, 80, of Dexter, passed away on Monday, November 6th, at Mercy One Medical Center in Des Moines. Visitation will be held from 3 to 5 p.m. on Saturday, November 11th, at the Johnson Family Funeral Home in Stewart. Funeral service will be held at 1 p.m. on Sunday, November 12th, at the Redfield Christian Church. Services will be live-streamed at facebook.com slash johnsonfamilyfh. Burial will be at West Lynn Cemetery near Linden. Time of fellowship and luncheon will follow at the Redfield American Legion Hall. Memorial contributions may be directed to the Redfield Christian Church or the Rex Harvey Memorial Statute Fund. Online condolences at the Johnson Family Funeral Home dot com. <clears throat> Charles Chuck Herfkins, eighty six, of Ankeny, passed away on November sixth. Visitation will be held from four to six PM on Friday, November tenth, at Our Lady's Immaculate Heart Catholic Church. 510 East 1st Street in Ankeny, with a mass of Christian burial at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, November 11th, also at the church. Chuck is survived by his wife, Jerry, daughters, Teresa Herfkins, Janice, partner Mark Thomas, Judith, partner Stephen Svensson, and Tammy, partner Faisal Masquaki. Ten grandchildren, ten, many great-grandchildren, and numerous nieces and nephews. A full obituary at the AnkeneyMemorial.com. <clears throat> John Paul Rorick, Sr., age 80, died in Des Moines on November 5th. John was a well-respected trial lawyer who loved the law and was a true advocate. Visitation will be Friday, November 10th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Isles Westover Funeral Home on Hickman Road in Des Moines. The funeral is Saturday, November 11th at 11 a.m. at Grace Lutheran Church at 52nd and Urbandale Avenue in Des Moines. Memorial contributions may be directed to the Grace Lutheran Church. There is a full obituary at IslesCares.com. <clears throat> Lee Copper, 88, of Waukee, and formerly of Norwalk and Wichita, Kansas, died Wednesday, November 1st, at home, peacefully, with the family in Waukee. A celebration of life services will be at 1.30 p.m. Saturday, November 11th, at the Powers 
Funeral Home in Creston. Pastor Tony Thurston will officiate. Burial will be at Graceland Cemetery in Creston. Open visitation will be one hour prior to the service from 12.30 to 1.30 p.m. November 11th. In lieu of flowers, memorials are to St. Jude's Children's Hospital and the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Online condolences at powersfh.com. Jack Powell, 83, passed away peacefully at home in the early morning hours of Thursday, November 2nd, after a long battle with Alzheimer's. Jack was born in Des Moines on February 21 in 1940 to Marvin and Eleanor Powell. He married Patricia Cox on October 6, 1963, and they remained living in Des Moines until 1970 when they decided to move to the country in Norwalk, Iowa, to raise their children. He served in the Army Reserves from 1962 to 1968, was a sheet metal worker, then project manager for the Waldinger Corporation for 25 years. In 1983, he was able to fulfill his dream of owning a hardware store, which he ran with his wife, Pat, and other family members for the next 24 years before retiring in 2007. He is survived by his wife, Pat, daughter, Michelle Posey, and partner, John, son, Michael Powell, partner, Jackie, and daughter, Melissa Woods, and partner, Terry, seven grandchildren, two great-grandchildren, his sister, Sharon Holloman, brothers, Ron Powell, Wendell Powell, and Rick Powell, and partner, Debbie, and many nieces and nephews. He is preceded in death by his parents. Visitation will be held Thursday, November 9th from 4 to 7 p.m. with the funeral service on Friday, November 10th at 10.30 a.m. at Sunset Memorial Chapel and Gardens on Fleur Drive in Des Moines. Burial will follow. Norman Lewis Reed, 90 passed away on November 3. He was born in Des Moines, Iowa. He graduated from Indianola High School and proudly served in the United States Army. He completed his degree at AIB. He then worked as an accountant for many years in Des Moines. Services will be at Peterson Funeral Home of Indianola, Iowa on November 11 at 11 a.m. Larry DeCook of Newton, died on Saturday, November 4, in Newton. A memorial service will be held on Saturday, November 11, at 1 p.m. at the First Presbyterian Church in Newton. A Facebook Live broadcast will begin at 1 p.m. on the Pence-Reese Funeral Home and Cremation Services Facebook page. A visitation with the family present will be held from 12 p.m. until service time. Memorial charity are suggested. Service arrangements are being conducted by Pence-Reese Funeral Home in Newton. Back to the main section. Qatar and the U.S., Trying for Israel-Hamas deal. Aim is for hostage release in exchange for short ceasefire. Qatari and U.S. officials are attempting to work out a deal between Israel and Hamas for the potential release of a dozen or more hostages held in Gaza, including Americans, in exchange for a short ceasefire multiple media outlets were reporting. Agents France Press, citing a source AFP said was close to Hamas, reported Wednesday that six American hostages were involved in the proposed deal. 
talks revolve around the release of 12 hostages, half of them Americans, in exchange for a three-day humanitarian pause, the source told AFP, adding that the pause would enable Hamas to release the hostages and to enable Egypt an extended period of time to deliver humanitarian aid. <clears throat> Earlier Wednesday, AFP had said the talks, mediated by the Qataris in coordination with the U.S., involved 10 to 15 hostages, but made no mention of nationalities. On Tuesday, Axios reported that under a proposal being discussed between the U.S., Israel, and Qatar, Hamas would release 10 to 15 hostages. A three-day pause would allow time to verify the identities of all the hostages and deliver a list of names of the people it is holding. Axios cited a U.S. official it did not name. Israeli officials say about 240 hostages are being held by Hamas and other militant groups. Israel has repeatedly refused requests from the U.S. and other nations for a humanitarian ceasefire until all the hostages are freed. The war has raged since October 7th when Hamas militants stormed across the border and killed more than 1,400 Israelis, most of them civilians. Israel's assault on Gaza has killed more than 10,300 Palestinians, including more than 4,200 children, the Gaza Health Ministry says. Secretary of State Antony Blinken on Wednesday rejected Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's plan to maintain overall security responsibility for the Gaza Strip after the war, saying the Palestinian Authority must ultimately take charge of the battered Palestinian enclave. Blinken, speaking after a meeting of G7 foreign ministers in Japan, said neither Israel nor Hamas can lead post-war Gaza. The voices and aspirations of Palestinian people must be at the center of governance, unified with the West Bank under the Palestinian Authority. More aid trucks went into the Gaza Strip through the Rafah crossing in the previous 24 hours, but there was a halt in the ability of U.S. citizens to leave Gaza. White House spokesman for national security, John Kirby, said Wednesday. <clears throat> there will be some days when we're more successful than others, Kirby said, of the administration's efforts in helping U.S. citizens get out of the war zone. He estimated 500 to 600 Americans and their family members who want to leave still remain. Meanwhile, the United Nations says about 1.5 million of Gaza's population of 2.3 million have been displaced. The flow of Palestinians leaving embattled northern Gaza for the somewhat safer south has increased markedly in recent days as the Israeli military has extended the four-hour evacuation corridors. 
The UN said the numbers rose from 2,000 on Sunday to 5,000 the next day and 15,000 on Tuesday. The agency said the majority of those making the trek south, often on foot, were children, the elderly, or people with disabilities. Some reported having to cross Israeli checkpoints, witnessing arrests, and being required to walk past Israeli tanks with raised hands while waving white flags. Abir Akila left her home in Gaza City after relentless strikes forced all her neighbors to flee southward. She said life in the city has become increasingly difficult amid dwindling water and food supplies. There was shelling and bombardment overnight, she said. We didn't have food or drinking water. They struck the bakeries. There is no life in Gaza. Since October 7th, 11 bakeries in Gaza have been destroyed, with no active shops left in the areas north of Wadi, Gaza, due to a lack of fuel, water, and other supplies, according to a report by the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. People desperately seeking food recently broke into three bakeries and took about 38 metric tons of wheat flour, the agency said. Eight bakeries in the south have been providing bread intermittently to shelters, depending on flour and fuel supplies, the agency said. People wait in long lines for hours to receive food from these shops, exposing them to airstrikes according to the UN. The Israeli military said it is thwarting Hamas's terrorist infrastructure by expanding its ground war in the territory, destroying command centers, weapons warehouses, and 130 tunnel shafts. The battle to control and destroy the underground maze, estimated at more than 300 miles, will be a key strategy for the Israeli military, experts say. Hamas leaders say Israel has exaggerated the scope of its infiltration, but Israel says specialized units are searching the tunnels for rocket assembly lines, stores of small arms and mortars, and even Hamas leaders and the hostages held by Hamas and other militant groups. Combat engineers fighting in Gaza are destroying the enemy's weapons and are locating, exposing, and detonating tunnel shafts, the military said in a statement. This is how the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, is destroying the Hamas terrorist infrastructure. The Israeli military also said one of its fighter jets killed Mohsen Abu Zina, the head of weapons and industries for Hamas, and an expert in developing strategic weapons and rockets. Meanwhile, Doctors Without Borders reported one of its lab technicians, Mohammed al-Ahel, was killed in Gaza during a bombing in the al-Shati refugee camp on Tuesday. The agency said his building collapsed, reporting killing dozens of people, including several of his family members. 
Our repeated calls for an immediate ceasefire have gone unanswered, the organization said in a statement Tuesday, but we insist that a ceasefire is the only way to prevent more senseless deaths across Gaza and allow adequate humanitarian aid into the Strip. Italian Defense Minister Guido Crocetto said his country is sending a hospital ship to be stationed off the coast of Gaza to provide medical treatment for Palestinians. The volcano has operating rooms and its staff includes medical and military personnel. Americans have become more likely to describe Israel as an ally that shares U.S. interests and values since the war with Hamas began, but they're divided over whether Israel has gone too far in its response to last month's attack. According to a new poll from the Associated Press, NORC Center for Public Affairs Research. The survey, conducted November 2nd to the 6th, also <clears throat> reveals skepticism among Democrats toward Israel, which could present a challenge for President Joe Biden as he tries to balance support for the country's defense and his party's shifting priorities. During an August poll, only 32% of Americans described Israel as an ally that shares U.S. interests and values, but that figure increased to 44% in the latest survey, which was conducted after the October 7th attacks. However, only 36% said it's extremely or very important to provide aid to Israel's military to fight Hamas, and 40% of Americans said Israel's military response in the Gaza Strip has gone too far. Nearly two-thirds of Americans, 63%, disapprove of how Biden is handling the conflict. The U.S. House GOP subpoenas Hunter Biden. Again, Dateline Washington, House Republican investigators took a significant step in their impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden on Wednesday, announcing it is issuing subpoenas to the president's close family and their business associates. Chair of the House Oversight Committee, Representative James Comer, a Republican of Kentucky, announced his committee would be sending subpoenas to members of Biden's family, namely Hunter Biden, the president's son, and James Biden, the president's brother. The committee will also send a subpoena to Rob Walker, a close business associate, to Hunter Biden. The House Oversight Committee has followed the money and built a record of evidence revealing how Joe Biden knew, was involved, and benefited from his family's influence peddling schemes. Now the House Oversight Committee is going to bring members of the Biden family and their associates to question them on this record of evidence, Comer said in a statement. Comer has been teasing in public appearances that his committee would soon begin sending subpoenas and interviewing key witnesses to take their probe into the next step as House Republicans consider whether to bring articles of impeachment against Joe Biden. The Kentucky Republican said he expected subpoenas in the what he called very near future in an interview on Fox News over the weekend. Newly minted House Speaker Mike Johnson, a Republican of Louisiana who took the helm as the House GOP's new leader midway during the impeachment inquiry, said his first for, at his first formal news conference that he expects a decision to come on impeachment very soon. The White House immediately criticized the inquiry and accused House Republicans of launching a smear campaign against Biden. 
Despite spending millions of taxpayer dollars to conduct this probe, they have turned up no evidence to support their outlandish allegations of bribery and high crimes and misdemeanors, which they claim are motivating their open-ended impeachment inquiry, said Ian Sams, a White House spokesperson for oversight and investigations, in a statement. Extreme House Republicans will not let the truth get in the way of abusing their power to conduct a smear campaign against the president, he added. Along with the subpoenas, the committee is also requesting other Biden family members and associates to sit down with the panel for voluntary transcribed interviews. The subpoenas come after Hunter Biden's lawyer, Abby Lowell, sent a letter to Johnson requesting him to intervene in the impeachment inquiry, accusing Comer, along with Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan of Ohio and Ways and Means Chair Jason Smith of Missouri, of what the lawyer called worn-out, false, baseless, and debunked claims. Johnson's office, however, rebuffed Lowell's letter, saying the probe will continue, arguing that evidence against the president is mounting. President Biden and the White House have repeatedly lied to the American people about his involvement and knowledge of the Biden family's business dealings, receiving millions through their shell companies from foreign adversaries, said Rajan, a spokesperson for Johnson's office. We have learned this because of the diligent work of House investigators who will continue to follow the facts where they lead, he added. House Republicans allege that Joe Biden financially benefited from his family's overseas business affairs. While investigators have shown that the president's family, namely Hunter Biden, made millions from foreign dealings, GOP members have yet to produce substantial evidence proving that Joe Biden reaped any personal benefits from these affairs. Comer, along with his fellow oversight Republicans, have zeroed in on two checks for $40,000 and $2,000 that James' brother made to Joe Biden in 2017 and 2018, saying the checks are evidence of wrongdoing, but the checks were labeled on the memo line as loan repayment. Democrats have argued the checks show no evidence Joe Biden benefited from foreign dealings. Bank records reviewed by USA Today suggest that the checks were indeed repayments for loans Joe Biden made to his brother. The records show that Joe Biden made two wire transfers of $40,000 on July 28 in 2017 and $200,000 on January 12, 2018 to James Biden through a bank account maintained by Joe Biden's attorney. Comer, however, has disputed those conclusions, arguing that even if the checks came, even if the checks from James Biden were loan repayments, the president was still involved in wrongdoing due to his brother's foreign business affairs. Well, going back to some local election results, Voss secures a second term for Des Moines at-large council seat. Incumbent Carl Voss has won re-election to the at-large seat on the Des Moines City Council, well, where he will represent the entire city for another four-year term. Voss, who turned 75 on Election Day, has been a longtime presence in Des Moines politics. He served as an interim City Council member in 2013 and 2014 before he was elected to the at-large council seat in 2019. Voss received 73% of the votes, according to unofficial election results, easily besting his challenger, A.J. Drew, a 55-year-old programmer for Principal Financial Group and newcomer to politics who got 26%. 
Voss told the Des Moines Register he was humbled by Tuesday's election results. I feel like I've worked hard in my four years, he said. I'm enthused about doing more good for Des Moines. So who is Carl Voss and what will he do on the Des Moines City Council? Voss serves on the Des Moines Metropolitan Planning Organization Policy Committee, the Des Moines Arts Festival Board, the Blank Park Zoo Foundation, Invest Des Moines, Neighborhood Investment Corporation, and the Joppa Village Coalition Board. Ahead of Tuesday's election, Voss told the Des Moines Register the city already has made, quote, tremendous strides in the last four years, and he wants to further improve on its successes. So, infrastructure and development, Voss said he plans to focus his next term on road infrastructure, public safety, and the environment, and address homelessness and affordable housing needs for residents. On the campaign trail, Voss praised existing programs like Invest Des Moines, Improving Our Neighborhoods, and the Neighborhood Development Corporation. He is a strong proponent of Vision Zero, a plan to improve road safety for pedestrians, cyclists, and motorists. On policing, Voss said he's in favor of some kind of citizen review board to bring more accountability to the city's police, and he has called to see the results of a report about local policing. He praised a mobile crisis unit provided by the Des Moines Police Department and Broadlawn's Medical Center. Des Moines Stink Voss says he led the way during his first term to install 10 odor monitors to track the stench coming from industrial meat businesses on the east side. And lastly, door knocking. In an election night call with the register, Voss fondly recalled knocking doors on the campaign trail this summer. He suggested he might keep knocking doors during his next term to hear from more residents, including those who don't usually attend neighborhood meetings. Pella's library stays independent by a thin margin after Election Day. In a tense battle over book censorship, Pella residents voted Tuesday to protect the local library board's independence. About 51% of voters cast ballots against a measure to give city hall officials oversight of the library's actions and budget, according to unofficial results. The non-binding referendum reached the ballot after some residents petitioned the library board to remove a graphic novel about gender fluidity mirroring a national debate driven by conservatives over what books taxpayer-funded libraries should carry. Just 87 votes separated the two sides, according to unofficial results. I feel the same way I did after I defended my doctoral dissertation, said Ann Petrie, a retired Central College professor of music and treasurer for the Vote No to Save Our Library Committee. It's not euphoria, it's relief.
Tuesday's election served as the culmination of a two-year political fight over LGBTQ rights in Pella, one of Iowa's most conservative communities. The community has continually sent Republicans to the legislature, and 68 percent of Pella voters cast ballots for Donald Trump in the 2020 presidential election. But Ann McCullough Kelly, a local mental health counselor and chair of the Vote No Committee, said Tuesday's results reflect the voice of many moderate conservatives who saw library censorship as too extreme. She pointed out that the city hosts not just Central College, but also Pella Windows and Doors and Vermeer Corporation, major companies who recruit employees around the world. Under the proposal, the council would have authority to change the library's policies. City Administrator Mike Nardini would oversee library staff and review the library board's spending requests. Under the current law, the council allocates an annual contribution to the library and appoints seven board members. The unpaid board members meet at least once a month, decide how to spend funds, and determine policies, including whether to remove books. Some residents tried to strip the board of its power after the library's leaders rejected a request to remove or restrict access to a book entitled Gender Queer, a Memoir. That happened in 2000, November of 2021. Maya Kobabi's 2019 graphic novel includes sexual images and explains how the author came to identify outside of the gender binary. Residents then asked the City Council in April of 2022 to place a referendum on the ballot to poll residents on whether the elected leaders should take more control over the library. The majority of the Council declined to take up the issue, according to the Oskaloosa Herald. The advocates then pushed for a referendum, gathering about 700 signatures in the summer of 2022 to prompt Tuesday's vote. Because the referendum failed, advocates cannot bring the same issue to a vote for another four years, according to Iowa law. McCullough Kelly and Petrie said they advocated on behalf of the library because they believed their political opponents would remove more books that supported LGBTQ rights or discuss racist actions in America's past. While the town of 10,000 is overwhelmingly conservative and about 92% white, McCullough Kelly and Petrie said they wanted to ensure underrepresented groups did not feel attacked. This work was really about making sure that we all have access to the things that we want in literature, McCullough Kelly said, and that we need. And for the last 90 minutes, your readers have been me, Twyla Glenn, and my partner, Linda McCullough. It's been our pleasure to read for you. Now we'll take a short, re a short break to allow our next readers to get into place.
Welcome back. Your new readers are Teresa Whitaker and Scott Splaybeck. Now we'll continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Here's Teresa with our next article. I'm going to the opinion section, and our first Your Turn guest columnist is Becky Taylor. Pro-student candidates win school board elections. After a grueling legislative session where public education and LGBTQ students were relentlessly attacked, Iowa's voters made their thoughts clear this election day. Far-right candidates seeking to politicize our children's education were soundly rebuked, not only in the Des Moines metro, but across ur- urban and sur- excuse me, urban and rural districts in Iowa. Out of the 13 statewide endorsements by Moms for Liberty, an extremist group that has elevated the words of Adolf Hitler, only a single candidate prevailed. Even in Pella, where Republican votes outnumber Democrats nearly three to one, voters rejected a measure seeking to politicize city council control over library policies, including book access. Countless other candidates seeking to run on banning books and punching down on students failed spectacularly. In Mason City, Carroll and Dallas Center Grimes, hardly known as strongholds of liberal values, progressive candidates prevailed unanimously. One notable case is in Linmar, where Governor Kim Reynolds sought to demonize the district's support for transgender students. Candidates supportive of inclusive inclusion swept with no Moms for Liberty endorsed candidate receiving more than 11% of the vote. This trend continued nationwide, with reactionary candidates getting steamrolled in Minnesota, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. Leadership in the State House is on notice. Real parents reject the cynical crusade against LGBTQ students in the name of parental rights. Iowans don't support banning books or curriculum, even in our most conservative districts. Voters were not fooled by the scheme of state-funded handouts to wealthy attendees of private schools, all while siphoning away from public school resources. For a legislative majority that supposedly champions local control and smaller government, this session's trend of authoritarian overreach damned countless candidates this election. Iowans want a state that is top-tier place to work, live, and raise a family. Governor Ken Reynolds and legislative leadership should shift their focus on issues that actually affect Iowans after this historic and resounding defeat. To our newly elected school board members, thank you for supporting inclusive schools and our public educators. Our students need your support more than ever, with our state's leaders using students' civil rights as a political sideshow. For our public schools to excel, I urge you to continue supporting pro-student policies. Research continually shows that LGBTQ youth with supportive schools report lower rates of suicidality. As the leader of an organization that has offered unwavering support for marginalized students for over 20 years, I look forward to assisting your efforts to make Iowa schools a better place for all. And that, again, was from Becky Taylor, who is the executive director of Iowa Safe Schools, the Midwest's largest LGBTQ youth-serving nonprofit. And our second guest columnist opinion is entitled On Animal Welfare, Tom Vilsack is Falling Woefully Short. comes from Sarah Amundsen and Kitty Block. Sarah Amundsen is president of the Humane Society Legislative Fund, and Kitty Block is president and CEO of the Humane Society of the United States. 
Nearly three years into the Biden administration, whatever hopes humane advocates had for a strong animal welfare commitment within the U.S. Department of Agriculture have all but passed from memory. The consequential agency with broad regulatory and enforcement powers has badly underperformed and animals are suffering as a result. This judgment rests most palpably on data indicating that under Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack, the USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service team has been unremittingly weak in its response to violators of the Animal Welfare Act, including puppy mills and roadside zoos. Violations range from animals living in filthy conditions to animals receiving inadequate veterinary care. For fiscal year 2022, USDA reviewed 262 cases involving violators but pursued just several dozen enforcement actions beyond simple warnings. Of the more than 13,000 USDA licensed and regulated facilities, a mere seven saw their licenses revoked or suspended, and to our knowledge, the agency did not confiscate a single suffering animal from any institution. Statistics from the two previous years were no better. Then there was the outrageous case involving the mistreatment of over 4,000 beagles bred and raised for animal research at a Virginia facility owned by the laboratory contractor Envigo. Not only did the USDA fail to address in a timely manner numerous documented violations of the AWA at the facility, but the actions of high-ranking officials within the agency may have perpetuated these dogs' suffering. USDA inspectors were reportedly directed to delete critical content from site reports and denied needed resources to support proper inspections, and one of the inspection team's leaders was removed without explanation. This raises serious questions not merely regarding the USDA, but about the federal government's overall approach to enforcing animal welfare laws. On multiple occasions since the year 1966, when Congress first charged the agency with the administering the AWA, it has extended the USDA's reach from animals in laboratories to those in puppy mills, roadside zoos, and transportation. The USDA has oversight concerning other animal welfare issues via the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act and the Horse Protection Act, as well as a number of statutes governing agriculture. That's a lot, and the agency now seems overmatched. When it comes to enforcement in relation to violations at the kinds of operations described above, the USDA is just not getting the job done. This is not the kind of thing that requires a presidential order or even a push from Congress. What it requires is leadership. During Vilsack's tenure as secretary from the year 2009 to 2017, the agency made some progress on animal welfare concerns, issuing rules to regulate large-scale dog breeders selling puppies over the Internet, prohibiting the slaughter of downed calves to protect the food supply and prevent humane handling and strengthening standards for animal welfare on organic farms. This time around, Vilsack just doesn't seem to have his heart in it, and the USDA doesn't seem willing to give its best effort to enforce the most basic standards of animal protection. Especially in the aftermath of the Invigo scandal, the question all but asks itself, what will it take to get the USDA to do better?
There is an even more important question. Is it time to ask other federal agencies to help shoulder the burden of promoting animal welfare and enforcing the Animal Welfare Act? Given rising public concern for animals, it makes sense to consider a whole-of-government approach that will make it easier to tackle animal cruelty more effectively. The best first choice for additional responsibilities is the Department of Justice, which already has limited statutory authority to enforce the AWA. In recent years, the DOJ has taken decisive action in high-profile cases involving animal exhibitors, dog dealers, and breeding facilities, and worked in close association with the USDA. It was the DOG, DOJ excuse me, that secured the consent decrees under which Invigo relinquished the beagles mentioned above and under which a commercial dog breeder in Iowa who had amassed over 120 serious animal welfare citations agreed to release over 500 dogs to the Animal Rescue League of Iowa. The Better Collaboration, Accountability, and Regulatory Enforcement for Animals Act, recently introduced in the House and Senate, would give the DOJ similar enforcement tools as the USDA, including the ability to rescue suffering animals from harm. Vilsack should welcome this legislation and its call for interagency cooperation between the USDA and the DOJ, but its passage won't solve the crisis of confidence that now besets the USDA. He's got to do that himself. And again, this was written by Sarah Amundsen, the president of the Humane Society Legislative Fund, and Kitty Block, who is the president and CEO of the Humane Society of the United States. Okay, and I'm going to read the letters to the editor. The first one, keep religion and government separate. The United States is one of the most religious nations on earth. More Americans believe in God and practice religion than in any Western European or other G6 country. We are also a country of great religious diversity. We got this way because we are a secular republic. You would hope the Speaker of the House of Representatives would know that and strive to keep religion and government separate. That was from Ivan T. Weber of West Des Moines. Our next letter, Rita Hart owes U of I Democrats an apology. On November 1st, the Iowa Democratic Party released a statement that claimed that a statement from the Democrats group at the University of Iowa included problematic anti-Semitic slogans, including, From the River to the Sea, Palestine Will Be Free. The Iowa Democratic Party's statement misquotes and misconstrues the original statement. The original University Democrats at Iowa statement was, May Every Palestinian Live Long and Free from the River to the Sea. The Arab American Caucus of the Iowa Democratic Party stands with University Democrats at Iowa in support of the freedom of every Palestinian in Gaza, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and inside Israel itself, as well as the right of return for Palestinians in line with the UN Resolution 242 and 338 as approved by the United States government. While the Iowa Democratic Party makes the false claim that the original University Democrats at Iowa statement is a call for Jewish genocide. In fact, genocide is occurring right now as Israel bombs Gaza indiscriminately, killing over 8,800 people, including more than 3,600 children. We call on party chair Rita Hart to correct the quote. 
and we stand with the IDP's Progressive Caucus in calling for Rita Hart to apologize to University Democrats at Iowa. That letter was from Newman Abusa, chair of the Arab American Caucus of the Iowa Democratic Party. Our next letter was showing Kirk Ferentz's son the door really so hard. Beth Getz pulled the rug out from under Kirk Ferentz and showed him that the athletic director should be the one running the athletic department at the University of Iowa. That was from June Swenson of Clermont. Our next, Congress must work together for a fair child tax credit. Ending child poverty is not rocket science. We know what to do. In 2021, the Expanded Child Tax Credit, or CTC, reduced child poverty by 40%. We were doing something right. Then we stopped. Why? Because Congress allowed it to expire. Last year, the child poverty rate more than doubled, from 5.2% in 2021 to 12.4% in 2022. It's been six weeks since the U.S. Census Bureau reported this alarming trend, and what has Congress done about it? Nothing. Here's the problem. Imagine two families with two parents and four children each. In 2023, the family making $400,000 received a CTC of $8,000, or $2,000 per child. But the family making $25,000 only received $3,375, or $844 per child. Is this fair? The current CTC is upside down. Families that need it more get less, while those who need it less get more. At the very least, if a low-income family is eligible for the CTC, should they not receive the same amount as the rich family? The CTC has had bipartisan support for decades. Our members of Congress must work together to make it fair. To start, I call on Senator Chuck Grassley to work with his colleagues on the Senate Finance Committee to expand the CTC so every eligible family receives the same child tax credit. That letter was from Peggy Fitch of Des Moines. And our last letter, Working Together to End Hunger. On October 28, I attended the Save the Children Action Network Iowa Summit. As a volunteer leader for SCAN from Cedar Rapids, I know up-to-date information grows our ability to advocate. We partnered with the Des Moines Area Religious Council for a day learning how we can advocate to end childhood hunger. Our keynote speaker was author Eric Talkin, who is also the CEO of the Food Bank of Santa Barbara, California. We learned that while food banks are important tools to fight hunger, we need to educate families on how to budget, garden, plan healthy, low-cost meals, and learn how to cook those meals. Programs to educate young children will be invaluable for their future. Many thanks to State Senator Sarah Trone Garriott and State Representative John Dunwell for providing important information on how to build trust so that our elected officials can rely on the information we provide them. They also stress the importance of how personal stories can impact decisions. Working together, we can help end childhood hunger. And that was from Kathy Meyer of Marion. Thanks, Teresa. Now here's what's going on on sports on television today. Today is Thursday, November the 9th, and in college basketball at 6 p.m. on the Big Ten Network, it's Southern Indiana at Michigan State. At 9 p.m. on the Pac-12 Network, it's Cal State Bakersfield at Southern Cal. At 11 p.m., excuse me, that was 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. The previous one was 8 p.m. This one's 10 p.m. Also on the Pac-12 Network, it's Northern Kentucky at Washington. 
That was men's college basketball. Women's college basketball at 5 p.m. on the ACC network. It's Harvard at Boston College. On ESPN2, it's Tennessee at Florida State. At 6 p.m. on the SEC network, it's Oklahoma at Mississippi. And at 7 p.m. on ESPN2, it's Iowa at Virginia Tech. College football at 6.30 p.m. on ESPN, it's Virginia at Louisville. On ESPNU, it's Southern Miss at Louisiana Lafayette. Uh, NBA basketball at 6 p.m. on NBA TV, it's Milwaukee at Indiana. At 8.30 p.m. on NBA TV, it's Atlanta versus Orlando. And apparently that game is taking place in Mexico City. NFL football, 7.15 p.m. tonight on Prime Video. It's the Carolina Panthers at the Chicago Bears. And that'll do it for sports on TV today. And I'll read a quick article here. Northern Iowa falls at North Texas in overtime. This comes from the Associated Press, and the dateline is Denton, Texas. Aaron Scott <clears throat> excuse me, scored 26 points as North Texas beat Northern Iowa. 83-77 to in overtime on Tuesday night and a season opener for both teams. Scott also contributed seven rebounds and three blocks for the Mean Green. Jason Edwards scored 19 points while shooting 6 for 10 and 5 for 6. That was for three-pointers, 5 for 6 from the free-throw line. Reuben Jones shot 5 for 11, including 3 for 4 from beyond the arc to finish with 15 points. Nate Heisey led the way for the Panthers with 20 points, 9 rebounds, and 3 steals. Logan Wolf added 18 points for Northern Iowa. Bowen Bourne also had 14 points. Northern Iowa hosts Loris on November the 14th. Okay, I'm just going to read a few of the um, 50 states, the money section. For Iowa, out of Des Moines, the state will pay $10 million to the siblings of an adopted 16-year-old Perry girl who weighed just 56 pounds when she died of starvation in a home where their attorney says the children were forced to fight each other for food. Out of Minnesota, St. Louis Park, this Minneapolis suburb is believed to be the first in the nation to elect a Somali-American mayor, Nadia Mohammed, 27. Mohammed defeated Dale A. Anderson, a retired banker. In Illinois, out of Springfield, a Republican state senator has proposed fresh legislation lifting a moratorium on new nuclear reactors and calls for new rules governing them. Indiana, Indianapolis, a woman accused of driving her car into what she thought was a Jewish school has been ordered to stay away from any synagogue, temple, and other Jewish-related religious and cultural centers in Marion County. And let's take a look at Kansas. Topeka, despite earning several hundred million dollars in the last quarter, Evergy executives have told investors to expect lower future profits in anticipation of state regulators approving a smaller utility rate increase than requested. And let's see, how about South Dakota? Out of Pierre, an October 23rd plane crash that killed a 76-year-old passenger and injured the pilot was caused by an abrupt engine stop, according to preliminary report by the National Transportation Safety Board. In Missouri, 
Columbia, a University of Missouri researcher, is using a $2.2 million National Institutes of Health grant to examine connections between insomnia and alcohol use disorder. And we'll do one more here. Let's do Nebraska. Omaha, a two-year-old golden retriever Labrador mix named Laramie, started a new job this week helping to calm crime victims for the Omaha-Douglas County Victim Assistance Program. She's going to be a huge icebreaker, especially with children, her handler, John Brazda, told the Omaha World Herald. And Now it's time for Dear Abby. and It's entitled, Wife's Online Chats with Another Man Irk Her Hovering Husband. Dear Abby... I discovered last year that my wife was exchanging flirty texts with a local man and had been doing so for years. I found out when I uncovered an image of an adult toy in her phone's deleted images. At the time, I nearly divorced her, but although our marriage went through a tumultuous period, we are still together. She told me then she'd stop communicating with this man. But a few months ago, she reached out to him for help with a social media account issue she had, and now they chat daily on social media. Although it seems platonic now, it bothers me and has been a source of contention in our marriage. She says she has problems finding female friends, that he understands her medical issues, and he's her friend, and they are back to messaging regularly. I can see what's being said but it still gets me upset. Am I an ogre for asking her to stop? She says that she has changed her mind and will continue to contact him. I feel like our marriage may be on a rocky ground again, but she thinks I am being awful for saying anything. Signed, Upset Hubby in Alabama. Abby responds, Dear Upset Hubby, (laughs) I am sorry you feel so insecure, which must be painful. You didn't mention in what context your wife had a deleted image of a sex toy. Many people shop for them online and couples enjoy them together. During the COVID-19 pandemic, sales of adult toys went through the roof. You say that you read all of the communications between your wife and her male platonic friend. Why isn't that enough? Women are allowed to have male friends, and these days, many of them do. If your marriage is in trouble, perhaps the cause is your effort to control her. It might improve if you back off. And our second letter to Abby is, Dear Abby, my son, who is five, has a rare spinal cord injury from birth. He can crawl, but he does not walk well. We have spent many months and a lot of money ensuring he is getting the best physical therapy and medical care possible for his condition, and we adhere closely to the medical advice of these experts. My mother, who lives 2,000 miles away, loves my son and wants to spend time with him. However, when we visit, she obsesses over the fact that my son can't walk well. I have reminded her not to fixate on his disability and to just enjoy time with him, which is what my son wants. But during his last visit, she told him, big boys walk, they don't crawl, and try harder to walk. My son has tearfully asked me twice if he can still be a big boy and crawl. He also uses a wheelchair. I'm fed up with my mother and would prefer to keep her away from my son, but I don't want to create a dramatic familial rift. Advice? 
Signed, Good Mom in Montana. Dear Mom, it is your duty as a mother to protect your son from harm. Tell your quote-unquote helpful mother that if she says anything again to shame him, it will be the last time she sees him. That brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today, Thursday, November the 9th. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and my partner at the microphone has been Teresa Whitaker. Earlier, you heard Linda Lundgren and Twyla Glenn. You can listen to Iris programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bendsoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. Thank you.